Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate is on the economics of cannabis. Then, for Transgender Visibility Day, we take an in-memoriam look at a New Jersey trailblazer. And our changemaker of the week is working to end period poverty. We'll tell you what that is and how you can help later on. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the cannabis economy. While roughly 60% of Pennsylvanians and New Jerseyans approve of legalizing recreational marijuana this week, the New Jersey legislature postponed legalization, unable to get the requisite votes. Now, there's strong opposition. It's coming from groups like Smart Approaches for Marijuana. I spoke to national spokesperson Abu Edwards, who says more testing is needed, as well as possible impact on communities of color. Who's behind big marijuana is big tobacco and big alcohol. And we've seen what big alcohol and big tobacco have done to communities. So where is the green going in the cannabis economy? And who will ultimately end up paying the price? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Desiree Ivy. She is the Philadelphia market leader of Women Grow. We also have Patrick Duff, co-owner of Philadelphia Temple of Hemp and Cannabis. Tahid Chappelle, he's a medical marijuana patient and secretary of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. Finally, on the phone, we have Jordan Harris, a Pennsylvania state rep and Democratic minority whip. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Americans spend roughly $40 billion with a B annually on legal and illegal marijuana. Patrick, who's making money here? In the legal stuff, I mean, there's uh, quite a bit of people making money. Mostly, though, right now, it's these large corporations that have got involved who are buying up dispensaries in every state they can. The problem is the legal pot that you're seeing out there now is just as expensive as the black market pot 15 years ago. These guys are growing pot and uh, basically selling it at a higher price than gold. You can grow marijuana for probably about 200 to 250 a pound if you're doing it indoor in like a small location without like light assist greenhouses like they have, which makes it even cheaper. Somehow they're getting back 6,000 to up to 50,000 a pound for the concentrated cannabis. Um, wow. Things like that. So yeah, there's a lot of money being made. Um, but it shouldn't be. Cannabis should be the price of a tomato. I want to go to you, Desiree. You hear what Patrick said, bigwick corporate companies investing millions and millions. Many times they're not local. How does this impact local folks trying to make money off of this, this green economy? Well, that was one of the problems in Pennsylvania. We had local people applying for dispensary applications um, who were people of color and none of them got it because they had these corporations coming in from Arizona, California, West Coast, who, you know, they got the permits to have dispensaries because they already were doing it. So Pennsylvania felt, let's give these people these, you know, licenses because they've already been doing it in the West Coast and they know what they're doing. There has to be another phase in Pennsylvania. Jordan, jump in here because the train for the medical marijuana has already been going, and that has been a big complaint. What's the issue here in Pennsylvania? 
there are large entities that are applying, not just in Pennsylvania, but in other states across uh, the Commonwealth. And because they do have the know-how, which is a part of their application, they do score higher. I've been very critical of the fact that Philadelphia did mm-hmm. not get a grower processor mm-hmm. or a dispensary license. And that is definitely something that I hope we rectify in the future. And Tarheeb, how does this impact the patients that we're seeing? Because we're talking about access, because it's not cheap. You know, when, when you don't have anyone from local winning these licenses or having an established license, you don't have any community connection. You have people from the West Coast coming in, establishing dispensaries, establishing grower processors, uh, processing facilities. And, um, you know, when I go into some dispensaries, sometimes the bud tenders are saying, okay, what type of product do you want? And then they're not even thinking about it as medicine. And, and that does uh, affect the experience going into a dispensary. Patrick, you have an organization, Philadelphia Temple of Hemp and Cannabis. I do, yes. Um, I, I opened my first dispensary in 2004, opened six between 2004 and 2010. So, I mean, I've, I've been in this industry for a long time and watching kind of the, um, you know, in California, if you want to get a re- medical marijuana recommendation or if you did, used to want to get it, you'd go to the doctor and it was pretty easy. You'd walk in, show them your ID. Yeah. You'd, uh, you'd get your recommendation within probably about uh, 45 minutes, I'd say. Um, here in Pennsylvania, I have people coming to my uh, location. I'm at, uh, on Frankfurt Avenue in Kensington who have been trying to sign up for the program here in Pennsylvania for six months. People have to sign up first through the state and then go to a doctor and then come back to the website and pay the state. It makes it such a difficult experience for people that people are just giving up. That's roadblocks for patients. Right. Um, there's also roadblocks you're trying to apply to, to, to participate. Right. Um, and a lot of this is, is causing the underground market to continue to flourish. Oh, absolutely. I own a business, Medisley Join It. <laughs> Um, in South Philly, and we uh, have doctors who certify patients there. And the patients uh, say, you know, they come back for their follow-up, and we're like, how was your first visit at the dispensary? And uh, they all say it's it's really expensive. I still have to, you know, call my old person to get my medicine. And so you're seeing that, and part of the process, if you really want to have legal marijuana is having people not to rely right. on the black market. Right. We want them to come to the dispensary where it's trusted, where, um, like Jordan said, Alara, they're, you know, their grow processor, one of the top ones in Pennsylvania. And we want people to come get their medicine because it's tested by laboratories. Um, they know what they're doing. They have a master grower there who knows what they're doing. And you don't necessarily know what you're getting on the street. And Jordan, when you hear these kind of encumbrances um, that you're hearing from patients, from dispensaries, your reaction to that? Pennsylvania is going to have to clearly make some amendments and some updates to our law. A lot of this is also going to be driven by the market. We have to get to a place where, one, the federal government allows it, uh, which would then, two, allow mm-hmm. insurance companies to begin to cover it. The truth of the matter is that medicine is expensive. If you go to the pharmacist without insurance and you ask to buy medicine in general, it is typically expensive. You have insurance, and therefore the cost of the medicine uh, is, is, is dropped dramatically usually because you have insurance. I think we're seeing the same thing with, with marijuana as a medicine, that um, the, the cost is, is pretty expensive uh, for folks. And, and we have to work out a process by which we change our attitudes as, as a country federally 
so that on a state level we can start to see insurance companies cover it, and then it could actually be treated um, in line with how medicine is treated uh, across the country. That being said, though, Jordan, in, in Portland, Oregon right now, you can buy an eighth of cannabis at a store for $6. Here in Pennsylvania, it's $60. Now, the grower processors in Pennsylvania, it doesn't cost them any more to grow cannabis than it does the people in Portland. And when you hear that, I mean, it is very expensive, and but Pennsylvania is, and New Jersey, in a, in a lot of ways, and Delaware, are very far behind and California, Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, Colorado, that have been in the game and doing this for a while. Tahid, you've been trying to push to, to raise awareness about this because there's because there's a lot of lack of education. When we talk about education too, and this is a good example, is that we we say black market, but we include black, and that includes a negative connotation to, mm-hmm. to people of color. Um, when we think about black market, people sometimes think of uh, you know black people, and so what I like to say in terms of education. We usually tend to say illicit market mm-hmm. that takes yeah. the black out of it, that removes the negative stigma to I call black it free market. That, you know, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's no longer a question of if; it's a question of when and how the program is going to look. What we typically see is in most states, uh, medical marijuana will get passed, and then adult use legalization will come through uh, at some some capacity. But the question is, is who is being involved in the conversations when building this legislation? Um, who's being brought to the table in these conversations? Yeah. Um, what community members are being are, are, are informed enough to know that they need to reach out to their politicians to, to raise their voice? And if there's not enough education from the ground level where community members don't know what's happening, they're never going to know what's going to happen until it happens. And that's what I'm really trying to push for is we need more community people to know what's going on because it's going to affect them. And that's why it's important for, for people like me who work in the media to educate as many people as possible so that they're aware and that they know that they can be involved. I want to talk about... Who's not making money? We have um, a lot of folks who are going to who could very well end up shut out of this green economy. And so where do I mean, you got women, you people trying to get women in, trying to get people of color. Um, why do you think so many folks and Patrick, I'll start with you, are on the outside of this? Look at New Jersey's program. That they just tried to implement that they couldn't pass. They actually the only people in the law that couldn't be involved in the program were people that were arrested for drug yeah. offenses. If you had raped a child and you did your time in jail, you can sell pot. How does it make any sense? I mean, there's usually it's crimes of moral turpitude that would leave somebody out of a, a situation where they could be in control of something. The fact is the moral turpitude, uh, the argument is, is gone because people are illegally selling pot now. And to talk about the people that aren't going to make money if marijuana is legal, um, there's a group in New Jersey called New Jersey Ramp. It's the biggest mm-hmm. anti-legalization mm-hmm. group in New Jersey. They say they were fu- founded by this uh, guy, Kevin Sabet, and a guy named Patrick Kennedy. But comes to find out, they were actually sounded, founded by an ex-assembly person from New Jersey who was a big anti-pot uh, advocate uh, named Mary Pat Angelini, who, guess what Mary Pat does? She is the CEO of behavior, Behavioral Health Group, which is, a, which is a drug rehab facility. So the people that are going to lose out when cannabis becomes legal are the people that get sponsored court uh, yeah. rehab. So, you, you know, you get busted with a joint and all of a sudden they're making you do 30 days of rehab. And guess who pays for that? The taxpayers pay for that. And these rehabs are going to lose out on money if cannabis is legal. So people really have to look at the intentions of these, yeah. quote unquote, anti-legalization groups. To back up Patrick's point, I mean, there are a lot of people have moral issues with this as well. But I know women are trying to come into the. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's what Women Grow stands for. I mean, our CEO, um, Dr. Shonda Macias, I mean, she's been here since the very beginning. She um, owns the top dispensary, woman-owned top dispensary in Washington, D.C. She's been here, like, fighting the good fight for women in this industry because it's predominantly male and it's predominantly Caucasian. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what Women Grow is is trying to do, uplift women leaders in the industry to get them to open their own businesses, start their own brands, um, because this is a new industry and now's the time to get into it. Before barriers yes. <laughs> tend to grow up. And so, um, Jordan, is there a way, is there a legislative way to sort of uh, build inclusiveness into the industry as it's being built? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the the, the uh, medical piece that we passed, there was some uh, language around inclusiveness. It, it, it wasn't as strong as we would have, you know, in my caucus would have liked it to be that we actually proposed. It was kind of watered down a little bit. But in Pennsylvania, there is a person, a deputy secretary of diversity and inclusion, who was actually in, and his his office was actually in on the scoring of the the applications. I think the other thing about this is the finance piece. And a lot of times we don't have that conversation. But the truth is there was a, a high financial threat threshold yes. um, um, to, to get into the industry in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Was it and I feel million? like a lot of, uh, yeah, it was about two million. But, but here's the thing, though. I think a lot of people were thinking about it the wrong way. A lot of folks thought they had to have the money individually. Where in a lot of other places, I've seen people pull their money together and use their collective resources to become a part of the industry. So I think the education on the financial aspect mm-hmm. on getting involved in the industry is an important one that we can't miss. There's a big conference coming up. That's the that's the whole point of my cannabis uh, education conference next Saturday, April 6th. It's uh, from 9 a.m. all the way to 4.30 p.m. It's open to the public. Um, we want people to come out. We're going to be educating community about all things cannabis, uh, how you can get into the industry, what do you need to know if you want to actually participate and get your own business, um, the history of, of, of marijuana and, and why it is, is, it is rooted in, in racist uh, rhetoric, what is the medical aspects, the research components to cannabis, what you need to know about the terminology. We're talking about THC, CBD. Like We are trying to educate and teach people all aspects about the cannabis industry and the movement to legalize it so that they can have a lot more in, uh, information and be more curious to figure out how can I be a part of this. There's a barrier of access everywhere in this industry, even not, not just on the business side, but on the patient side too. And Patrick mentioned this too. I came from out of state, from D.C. to Pennsylvania. So many barriers that I had to go through because I had to be a PA resident, which means I had to get my driver's license and wait at the DMV and time is money. Um, and then I found out that I had to get my social security card just to get my uh, driver's license. So again, time is money. And then I could actually you know, participate and sign up as a medical marijuana patient. Um, so people don't know that. And, and then it's not covered by insurance. And then it's no. not covered so by then insurance. you got to have the money to actual buy right. your medicine. Informed patients yeah. and informed people who are, who are interested in getting into the industry, that's where it all starts. Can we talk quickly about the disparate impact? Because we know that white Americans use marijuana at the a rate equal mm-hmm. to uh, African Americans and Latinos, yet people of color are far more likely to get arrested and do prison time. How do we make sure that those who are most hurt can get a job and work and actually make some money when this this actually becomes legal. They should be let out for these small misdemeanors. They should not be in there if they are. Um, they should be expunged, you know, but these, it's just not, it's just not looking that good right now. Like and people are saying that retroactivity, yes. once it becomes legal, should be part of it. I would disagree that it's not looking good because Representative Jake Wheatley actually introduced a bill, I think it's House Bill 50, yes. that looks to legalize adult use uh, cannabis. And beyond that, in his bill, it does deal with the expungement of, of records. The clean slate bill that we did last year, um, possession charges would be covered under clean slate. Additionally, this year we're introducing legislation around on uh, non-dangerous felonies. And 
that would also include drug felonies. So on that issue, I do agree we should have done it automatically. I don't necessarily think Pennsylvania is in a place to do it automatically. But I do believe that there is a will and a desire to do something with regards to to drug charges, uh, if not this term, within the next term of the General Assembly. And then I want to switch gears real quickly because New Jersey didn't have the votes to pass recreational marijuana, right, to legalize recreational marijuana. Neither did Delaware, Pennsylvania, not yet. The majority of citizens are okay with it Mm -hmm. at this point. What's What's the issue that is keeping... Uh, these states in our region from getting the votes that they need. Gerrymandering. (laughs) (laughs) Misinformation. I mean, it's just misinformation, too. There's there's still um, archaic thought about what cannabis could do. People are still scared that this is going to destroy communities. It's going to destroy the morality of communities. It's going to introduce more drug trade. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of people who who at the at the at the level of uh, lawmakers who still believe in these things and even though that there is research even though there are facts out there that that say otherwise that rhetoric is still being talked about and 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 it takes very small steps to change minds and change hearts and and that's why education is so important and so when you're out there Jordan trying to get mm-hmm. drum up the votes cuz he's the whip y'all he's the whip mm-hmm. so what are folks telling you when they say, no, I can't vote for it? Well, the first thing, I wasn't joking when I said gerrymandering. The fact is that uh, the majority of Pennsylvanians agree with the legalization. The problem with that is because the way we gerrymander some of our districts, a lot of them are grouped in the same legislative districts. And that's just not just with this issue, but with a myriad of issues. Mm-hmm. Gerrymandering helps to keep certain issues under wraps because while the majority of Pennsylvanians may agree, legislatively, they don't, they're not spread out enough to where those views impact enough legislators so that it impacts um, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing has to do um, with with uh, changing the mindset of folks. I mean, some people still believe it's a gateway drug. We know that it is not. But I mean, when I'm in when I'm in meetings, that's what people are saying. Oh, it's a gateway drug. It's going to create this havoc. It's going to create that havoc. For me, a lot of times, what I think has to happen in the legislature is, sadly, you got to go step by step. So I, I believe that medical has happened. We see that the world has not come to an end, and therefore, a lot of my colleagues are starting to change their mind around the issue. So I, you know, I think a little bit of time. I think Pennsylvania is kind of on the precipice of getting there. The last thing I'll say about it is the financial aspect of it. There are a lot of folks in my in, in my in the General Assembly who do not want to raise taxes, but Pennsylvania needs revenue. So I think uh, at the end of the day, marijuana will be legalized in Pennsylvania. It won't be legalized for the moral value, but it will be legalized for the financial value. In Jersey, I know what's the big issue in Jersey. What's the big holdup in Jersey? The big holdup in New Jersey is they can't figure out how much they want to screw the voters of New Jersey with these taxes. I mean, at forty-two dollars an ounce. It's a $672 per pound they're charging in tax. Now, could you imagine if they charged $672 for a pound of tomatoes or potatoes or anything else that we have to buy in our, in our life? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fruit. It grows on and a so tree. New Jersey's big problem is how to regulate the well, industry. You know and, what? So, yeah. and, and here's the thing is, is I hear people, a lot of people talk about how expensive it is to get in the industry. Well, in Pennsylvania, you have seven and, and hopefully ten grower processors who the dispensaries don't even grow their own pot. They don't grow anything. They don't process anything. They just get it and sell it. So, so why would it be any different if you sent the pot to a small store in Kensington or in Fishtown or in northeast Philly or southwest Philly where they could sell yeah. a, 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 yeah. the same pot being produced by these companies and get in on these, this profit? Now, that being said, I think what people really need to do is sign up to vote so they make sure they get called to a jury. And any time marijuana comes up in any jury, you say not guilty. Yeah, and and yeah. guess what? Take no offense, but the regulatory systems to keep pay people out 
need to be ended. It should be that people can get involved in cannabis just like yeah. you can get involved yeah. in farming asparagus. Okay, I've had three friends murdered because cannabis's value is so high in the black market. I did not fight for legalization yeah, yeah. For, for, for this mm-hmm. to happen, for, mm-hmm. for cannabis prices to be so high that people will still get murdered over a pound of pot. Because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. We're all aware of the many inequities caused by cannabis. So how do we as Americans stand up and do it right so that everyone is able to get, get a fair shot at benefiting from cannabis capital? We'll start with you, Desiree. And we'll end with Jordan. And please, Tahid, make sure you mention the website. Yeah. I would continue with uh, pushing to get women to come into the industry. Absolutely. Being an advocate in Pennsylvania, pushing for new um, ailments to be on the list and, you know, supporting our state reps like Jordan Harris. People need to take charge themselves. And as I said, sign up to become a voter. Um, vote, obviously, and then get on every jury and say not guilty to any cannabis crime because cannabis is not a crime. The crime is prohibition. Learn about the history. Learn about the war on drugs and how it was nothing but made up to Mm -hmm. destroy and decimate communities of color and come out to my event on April 6th, more than just green, the color of cannabis, uh, April 6th, to understand why we're doing this, why education is important. PhillyColorOfCannabis.com. You will learn and you will understand. Final word, Jordan Harris. Information is power. Inform yourself mm-hmm. with information as if it is your weapon. When people are informed, they make better decisions. Thank you to Patrick Duff. Thank you to Desiree Ivy. Thank you to Tahit Chappelle. And finally, thank you to Jordan Harris for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next up, she helped pass a law to make it easier for trans individuals to change their gender on their ID. Nothing stopped her. An in memoriam look back at a New Jersey trailblazer for Transgender Visibility Day. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Delaware Valley hot under the collar is discrimination. And one transgender woman dedicated decades of her life to ending it. Barbara Babb Sipperstein became the first openly transgender member of the Democratic National Committee in 2009. She was a towering figure in the LGBTQ community who pioneered barrier-breaking legislation in New Jersey. Babs died last month at the age age of 76, just weeks after a law in her name had passed. Here to tell us more about Babs's life and legacy is fellow activist and friend Julia Scotty. Julia, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Church. Great to be here. Now, I had a, the pleasure of interviewing Babs a few, just right after the, the Cyperstein law passed, uh-huh. and she was an amazing person. The Cyperstein law was one of her final efforts. I think she kind of held out to see it become reality, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I I'm transgender, so when I transitioned like 19 years ago, you had you couldn't change your gender uh, on your driver's license, for, for instance, until you'd had the surgery. You might see the problems there, getting stopped by police and 
et cetera, et cetera. It could have been very uncomfortable. Well, her law made it so that we, whatever your gender was, you could just declare it without having to show proof. So it made it a lot easier for transgender individuals to make sure that their the gender on their uh, documents, state right. how they identified, you know, and for us in the community, it, it makes life a lot easier. Tell us about Babs. You, 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 you two were friends for uh, many years. As you know, I'm a comedian, and and when things were starting to happen for me, we were put together by a mutual friend named Joey Novick, who's a lawyer, and he said, "You need to meet this woman." And we went out to dinner, and we just hit it off right from the right from Jump Street. And indomitable is the word I'd use for her. She just nothing stopped her. She just plowed ahead, and she became the first woman to go to the Democratic Convention to sit on the committee. And then this law, she worked right up till the end to get it passed. People owe her a great debt of gratitude. So what made her, what, what drove Babs to do all of this? Well, she was always, from what I know about her, she was always politically motivated. And to be honest, the transgender life is not an easy one, especially when she came out. And, and I know when I came out almost 20 years ago, it was really difficult for me. And I think she preceded me in coming out by a few years. You know, you're second-class citizen as a trans person, and we're all trying to just be equal. That's all we want, and just to get the same things that everybody else has out of life. When you can break down barriers... It makes it easier for the succeeding generations to come in and just live a peaceful life. Yeah, and Babs did a lot. She was pushing for legislation. She was the Stonewall Democrats. I mean, she did a lot. Give us a a little bit of a history because people have to understand how amazing this woman was. She, uh, I'll I'll give you an example. She took me down to the New Jersey uh, Teachers Convention. She called me up. She goes, would you come and speak to these the, the LGBT caucus down there, I think is what it was for. And I went down there, and I, you really got to see how influential she was, not just in the LGBT community, but in the cis community as well. There wasn't a person down there that didn't know who she was and what she was all about and what she was fighting for. Phil Murphy, the governor of Jersey, I thought it was so nice of him to invite her to the legislature on the day that they they signed the bill into law. I wish my life were as meaningful and impactful as hers. And one of the things she um, did, she was a business person. She had her own business. Right. And um, she knew how to make friends on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, something that's sorely missing from a lot of our government today, I think. She and how was did. she able to do that? How did you witness her doing that? She just was one of those person, uh, people that didn't see the barrier you know, between Republican and Democrat. No one was friend or foe. If she could help her community, it didn't matter what party they were affiliated mm-hmm. with. She just, that was her main concern was the trans community. Because she experienced so much. Yes, and and she spoke for a lot of us. Anybody who's gone through this process, especially as long ago as we both did, knows you know some of the the roadblocks you run into. Personally, when I went to get my license changed, I, I got my name changed that day. Went right from the courthouse to the motor vehicle department. Boy, imagine my surprise when they wouldn't change my gender on my license. Because of her, people don't have to go through that anymore. It's another two years before I could get that F on my license. Part of what we do here at Flashpoint is educate people. A lot of people um, may not know why that is so important. Explain. As a cis person, that's what you know. we call people who are not trans, and you are a cis Imagine somebody started to question your gender. You know, when you went to fill out a, an application, somebody said, no, 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 you're not female. Uh, you're something else. How would you deal with that? And so... Because of Babs and and the work she did, we can just be, and that's the word I use, just be. 
We don't have to prove anything to anyone anymore. The generations that precede us owe her a, a great deal. And they may never even know that it was her that did it, but they should. They should. Every time a, you know, a piece of the wall is taken out, uh, it makes it easier for, for people that come after us. And yeah. we're in the infancy of our, our movement. Yeah, and when I think about the LGBTQ community and I think about the movement that happened, it mm-hmm. was like LGB was right. separate from the T for a long time. Well, we we were kind of like the the, the uh, <laughs> like the stepchild in a divorce for from the LGBT uh, the LGB community, and, and in some ways we are still put at the back of the bus, metaphorically speaking. You know, because trans people can be gay or straight. I mean, it has nothing to do with. Your sexuality, the, the gender and sexuality are two different things. So we we are we've been moving more and more towards I want to say a separatist kind of movement where we are standing up for ourselves as more and more of us you know appear on the scene. As an example, I I, I did America's Got Talent a few years back. I came out on that show in front of the entire country because of that. I heard from people all around the world who were coming out and and, and you know how much it meant to them. So we're we're uniting as a as a movement as a group too, and and kind of separate, sort of separate from the LGBT movement. And yeah, and Babs was a very effective warrior in the movement. She was. Nothing stopped her, <laughs> and she 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 straightened you out if you if you crossed her. You Give know? me a story. You know, like that I you said, think epitomized this was this was typical Babs, and this is why she was so fierce. I think we we, we were out to dinner one time, and, and one of the. Uh, Waiters, they do this a lot. They'll refer to us as he if we present as female, or because not everybody passes. And she just she just straightened him right out. And you gotta love somebody like that. I I I just had that problem in a hospital of all places where where somebody kept referring me to, to me as he, mm-hmm. and and it it's it's hurtful. I think anybody that you know, especially people like Babs. Anytime you hear something like that, an injustice being done, it lights that fire in your belly and you just got to speak up. You know, you yeah. just do. When I was first started covering the transgender community, I had gotten calls and I've been straightened out on more than one occasion <laughs> and told, you know, and I mean, like part of it is education. Mm-hmm. And that's why Transgender Visibility Day is so important because it's an opportunity to educate people who may not necessarily try to be intentional, but it's important that you get this right. I've had people come up to me after shows, and mm-hmm. I and I and I talk about it in my shows. People who said, "Geez, you know, I never really understood what it was about," and they go, "We looked, at you, we look at you, we listen to you, and uh, we don't see the gender part of it. We don't see you as male, formally male, I should say. We just see you as Julia." which is the nicest compliment you can get. Mm-hmm. And Babs was the same way. And I think we all are in the trans community. We just want to be, just respect us. If we ask you to refer to us in a certain way, how hard is it to just respect us and do that? You know. And um, so if you were to sum up Babs's legacy, which I know is probably difficult, um, what would you say uh, will be the thing that people remember the most? I wish I could swear on <laughs> this program, but she didn't take any BS. She fought for our, she fought for us in the way that to make the way easier for other people. She was a warrior. She was a warrior. And when she passed away, I mean, everybody, so many people mm-hmm. spoke up. Senator Cory Booker. You had the governor uh, speaking up. You had lawmakers, other activists who had worked beside her, uh, saying what uh, an effective 
wonderful warrior for not just the transgender movement, mm-hmm. but just movements in general, anti-discrimination movements. I can was. remember you asked me about I, when I was first even considering this and transitioning mm-hmm. back back in 1999. I was at New Jersey Pride in Asbury Park, and she was one of the speakers. And uh, I clearly remember looking at her and going, my gosh, I want to be like her. She was fierce up there on the stage in front of thousands of people, just d- demanding equality. Uh, and she really was inspirational to me very early on in my in my uh, my journey. Yeah. Yeah. Born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, people compared Babs to the likes of Harvey Milk, mm-hmm. Sylvia Rivera and Bayard Rustin. Yeah, that's fair. I think I think that's fair. Her life uh, elevated her to that that status. Mm-hmm. You know, she like I said, she was just fierce. The Baird Rustin, man, that's that's, that's pretty dope. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty dope. <laughs> so, and just so folks know, uh, Babs had served as the, as the president and board member of the New Jersey Stonewall Democrats until it closed in 2013. She was also the VP of the Garden State Equality and vice chair of the Democratic National Committee Eastern Caucus, and she has a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, she was on the New Jersey Civil Union Review Commission. She was a political director of the Gender Rights Advocacy Association of New Jersey. She was busy. Yeah, I suspect that somewhere down the road there's going to be a movie made of her life. I, I, that's just my guess because it's, it's, it's perfect for either a documentary or, or a, a movie, uh, a feature movie. She was that much of a character. Yeah. yeah, and I will say as we close this out that when I talked to Babs, she, she seemed tired. But the fire was still there. I think it almost made her angry that she was leaving this mortal coil, you know, uh, because she had so much more she wanted to do, I think, in in her life. And she could role model. Yeah. yeah. And so what do you think she would say about this life of hers if she were to look back at all the things she was able to accomplish? <sighs> Boy, it's hard to speak for her, but I, I think she'd say there's still more to do. What's done is done. And she, I'm happy about that. But there's still more to do. Well, thank you so much to Julia Scotty. Thank you. On the life of the one and only Bab Sipperstein. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Next up, a nonprofit working to shine a light on a dirty little secret. The more we talk about it, the more we eradicate the stigma. A form of poverty that keeps women in shame and how you can help. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, the Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Just search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW are all about community, and there's a stigma that surrounds a woman's time of the month, and it can be detrimental to one's health. So there's a call to action happening right here in Philadelphia. There's also an effort to get more folks to talk about S. E-X. Here to tell us more about No More Secrets, Mind, Body, 
Spirit is Executive Director and CEO Lynette Medley. Lynette, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. And so what is the problem that you saw that you wanted to fix with No More Secrets? I think the problem was the decrease in conversations around issues around sex and sexuality that actually inhibits persons' overall health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about the period situation, because I like to keep saying it, because the more we talk about it, the more we eradicate the stigma. So period poverty is going on in the city of Philadelphia. So why do you think this stigma exists? I think because it's always been this dirty little secret or this curse or the nasty time of the month or the secret. So it's nothing that's been like highlighted as something beautiful and exuberant for women as if we've had messages of it being derogatory. Yeah. And that's why period poverty has been able to occur. What is that? So period poverty is when persons have the inability to be able to purchase or buy feminine hygiene products. Mm -hmm. And it happens in areas where people are in poverty. So if I'm in poverty, then I can't afford basic necessities like food, clothing, you know, utilities sometimes, even water access. So how am I going to buy something as simple as a feminine hygiene product? And so it's expensive to buy A box of feminine products, like $9 sometimes. Yes. So even when No More Secrets started telling the community about it and I asked people to donate, do you know how many people called me and was like, oh, my God, Lynette, I didn't know they were that expensive? Because, you know, a lot of people who are donors are sometimes older people, so they might not be on their menses at this time. Or you're so, you know, used to buying certain things you don't realize, but when you actually calculate it in your brain and think this is a monthly expense for someone who might even have multiple children in their household, how can they afford it? And so what are you doing about it? So what we're doing is we're eradicating the stigma by having people even post on social media pictures of themselves holding feminine hygiene products saying it's natural, it's human, it's a woman, it's not a curse. And also we are having a ongoing feminine hygiene drive. Our office has created the only feminine hygiene bank in the city of Philadelphia. We started it in December and we've been having collections being donated from, you know, people in the community, people from churches, and they've been donating ongoing because we've created a space where people can get these supplies free of charge with no questions. All they do is fill out a form or they fill it out on our website and we provide those services. Even if you're getting assistance from the federal government, for example. Yes. I did not know this. Please explain that. So what people don't realize is that if you're on public assistance, you can't use your EBT card for supplies like feminine hygiene products and toiletries and things like that. So people think that the food stamp or the card that they swipe, you cannot use them for that. So all you have is your cash assistance. So let's just think. Most women will tell me I have to choose between paying utilities, paying my rent, and getting other items or getting feminine hygiene products. So they have to go without the feminine hygiene products because we all know in public assistance, you're not bringing home that much every week. So they can't afford it. And so, you know, without getting too graphic, what are people doing? Because this is something that I'd literally take for granted. Yes, you do take it for granted. So if you have a menses and there's no control of your own, some of our young people are using stuffing from plush animals. They're using rags that they have. They're using wife beaters. But the common thing that most people are using are socks. They're using socks and gloves and they wrap them up and, you know, other toilet tissue that they get from people or paper or whatever. And they try to wash them out. But they are basically using socks. Otherwise, they are using maybe a tampon that they get or or a pad that they get and keeping it in for up to 10 to 18 hours because they don't have another one. So remember when we started all these drives for, you know, pampers and stuff and diapers to get rid of diaper rash. So right now, a lot of young people have horrible rashes down there and infections and they're not going to the doctor for other things, common colds or 
physicals because they don't want people to know that part because they don't know what's going to happen to their families. And and uh, toxic shock, shock syndrome. syndrome, TSS, is a is a real issue. Yes. It can cause... I, I met a young woman who actually had an amputation because Definitely. of TSS. Yes. And so people are violating this rule yes. to their own detriment. To their own detriment because they're desperate. If you really think about it, they're desperate. They don't have anything uh, or anywhere to go. This breaks my heart. I'm just mm-hmm. going to put that out there. But Definitely. It, and, and you also facilitate very open and honest discussions about sexuality yes, as well. Yes, I do. Yes, And I why do. is that important? I think, as we call it, crucial conversations. I think the more information people have and the more conversations they have in their authenticity and truth, then we can meet them in their community level. Because the more we give them realistic and real-time information, then they can make more informed choices. I think what happens is if we don't give them the options and the information, then they're going by what everybody is saying. Yeah, and I, and I saw that there was actually a video on your website where you had a mother who was trying to have that birds and bees discussion with her daughter. And you help facilitate that. Definitely. And I think it's important because we're versed on this, like the hot topics around social media, what's going on, what's going on with the new, you know, things that they're talking about in their language and what they're doing with their apps. Parents aren't aware of that because they're not in that lane. So we were able to have these conversations with her about this instantaneous access for gratification that young people are, are basically getting on social media and through their apps. That's very uncomfortable for parents. It is. And a lot of people just assume kids know about it. They Mm -hmm. have no idea. And they find out about stuff (laughs) on the Internet with their friends. And so you really help people. You have classes where parents can come with their kids. Yes. And and actually... Have that conversation. And we do it in a really interactive way so that people can really, you know, listen, open conversation and make it comfortable for parents. Because parents, like you said, you might fix something. What? Like you're not a plumber. You might fix a leak really quick, but you're not a plumber. So as you can say, you can give basic information, but this isn't your lane. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I I think, and, you know, with a lot of kids having LGBTQ status and a lot of different things. You don't know what to tell the kids. So mm-hmm. I think having someone like you facilitate that discussion probably would be very helpful to a lot of parents. And so for folks who want to donate or find out more about the services you offer through No More Secrets, please tell us your website. Okay, our website is nomoresecretsmbs.org. And the MBS is for Mom, Body, Spirits. Wonderful. And so Lynette Medley, you are this. When I met her, she was like, look. This period of poverty. And I was like, oh, sure my did. God. Oh, my God. But then when you started telling me what it meant, mm-hmm. I was like, we have to have her on the show. So Definitely. this is something I think that will lift the curtain. Uh, and a lot of women are suffering in silence. They do. And we need to donate. So donate at No More Secrets mbs.org Lynette Medley thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint talking about this issue in the news thank you for inviting me well that's it for the Flashpoint podcast I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content follow us on Twitter our handle is Flashpoint Show you can also follow me at Cherry Gregg if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar let us know and we'll walk you through the flames as Abraham Lincoln once said a prohibition law strikes a blow at the very principles upon which our government was founded I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.